Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Unnatural Causes In the span of just over two years, starting in 2018, in a small area of suburban Dallas, in a cluster of retirement facilities, 26 senior citizens died of natural causes. That was the finding of the police authorities. Oddly, in all cases, there was clearly a robbery involved of expensive jewelry, including wedding rings taken off the deceased, and in two cases, a safe was purloined. In almost every case, investigators failed to collect fingerprints or DNA evidence, order autopsies, or photograph crime scenes, all standard death investigation practices, particularly when paired with a theft or burglary report, as was the case with nearly every homicide in this grim procession. Join me as I discuss this troubling case with journalist and AARP magazine contributor Lisa Olson as she shares her story of Unnatural Causes. Welcome, Lisa. Good afternoon. So let's, um, this this comes at us from many different angles, but it is uh, uh, because more and more people are living in reti- either retirement communities, assisted living. Uh, some people, unfortunately, still living totally by themselves in a house. Uh, but these murders that occurred in Texas um, were uh, mostly uh, in, a, in a general area, which we're going to talk about in a bit, how big this area was. And we'll talk about uh, how uh, inept or how complicit both the police in a couple of different jurisdictions and the uh, management companies that owned and or operated uh, these facilities, how, how they contributed. As you uh, point out in the article, uh, these deaths um, occurred uh, as a cluster, both in location and, and time. I can't tell you the exact number of square miles, but I can tell you that the person who was convicted of two of these murders in Dallas, and there's, you know, two dozen that he suspected of committing, most of which were the subject of indictments in two counties, is, you know, this very large kind of sprawling suburban area north of Dallas, but many of these locations were just within a couple of miles of each other. So, you know, the area, um, is, is a sprawling area surrounded by highways and there's different community names, but really he lived in an apartment complex and lived a couple different places that was in any one direction or another, he could get to these places within about 10 minutes. There were highways that connected these places. They were in North Dallas, in the suburb of Plano, in the adjacent little town of Frisco, 
and the little other little town of city of Richardson. But they're all essentially what you'd call like the North Dallas sort of metroplex sprawl. You know, some of our country's fastest growing counties. And um, we, of course, obviously can call him a serial killer and also a, a prolific serial killer. And unusual. I love when an article or I mean, a story is unusual uh, that it's not a Ted Bundy. It's not uh, that there wasn't movement. He didn't move around. Uh, it was, again, in a very he didn't have big times, a big uh, amount of time between didn't lay low for years and years and come back again, which some of the serial killers have done. He also was not as best, again, that I get from the article, you'll fill in anything else you got from your research, that he wasn't a psycho in a sense of killing for pleasure. P kill, there, I don't think were any rapes. It was it was purely robbery and wiping out the witness. Am I right? I would say you're absolutely right. I think he might have started with robberies or burglaries where no one was killed. And ultimately, he progressed to these kinds of robberies where he took always worn jewelry off of the hands of people, including their, you know, wedding rings, their, you know, keepsakes that they'd had for decades and that they never removed. One woman had a locket that she'd gotten from her daughter who was dead which was identical to her other daughter's locket that, that had been purchased in Italy. Another woman had a, you know, very, very cherished wedding ring custom made in Brazil. So very distinctive, always worn jewelry taken off of the hands and the necks of people who were killed. Um, there were almost immediately reported robberies or burglaries in most of these cases, but the deaths themselves were ruled to be natural, even though certainly some of the family members were very, very shocked and very concerned. How would it be that the person I saw yesterday, who was in perfect health, who had a monitor around their neck that they could have touched to call 911 or to call the management of the facility, did not even have time to do that, did not have time to call me, did not have any known, you know, it's important to say these were not people who lived in nursing homes or hospices. These were people who were living in independent living centers or on their in their own homes. Mm -hmm. Many of them were in very good physical shape. Some of them had absolutely no known recent health issues at all. So in some of these cases, you know, their families were just absolutely shocked when they dropped dead. And, uh, you know, in some cases had, like I said, wedding rings missing. In two cases had safes missing from their places when they suddenly, you know, died naturally. Um, the police generally did not view these as homicides or as potential homicides. And the burglaries or robberies were sort of cursorily investigated. Um, and this, so the serial killer was able to skate for a long, long time undetected. I'm sure the relatives pushed for, if not an autopsy, well, there needs to be an investigation. And these pile up over time and the, and the police just don't, correct? Just don't. Absolutely. I mean, there were some people who very immediately pushed for homicide investigations, that wasn't the majority because a lot of people just didn't want to believe that somebody could have snuck in and not only 
stolen something, but taken somebody's life. But a couple of the early murders, in fact, um, the first murder I talk about in the piece, which to, to this day, there is no indictment in that case, involves Dr. Catherine Sinclair. And when her niece and nephew came into her apartment and her safe was missing, which had a collection of gold in it and all sorts of valuables were missing, and there was blood on her bed. And Dr. Sinclair was 87 years old. She was in really good shape. Her her niece and nephew visited her often. She used a walker, but she had been a, a military veteran. Uh, she was had worked in an ER well after the normal like, retirement age. She was a vigorous woman. So her uh, nephew and niece really said, you know, look, we think our aunt fought someone for her life. And why is her safe missing? And that that call for of alarm, you know, did not really prompt a vigorous investigation. Absolutely not. And that was the very first known kind of murder in this chain that is outlined in civil lawsuits and in criminal indictments. And again, Dr. Sinclair's death has never been ruled to be um, it has never been uh, there's never been an indictment for that for that case. But and and really, it was just you know, hey, Dr. Sinclair is 87. You know, she was using a walker. She she probably just died. Get over it. And there was certainly a concern about, okay, a safe went missing. But the, at the time, Dallas police, that was in the city of Dallas, were going through a period where, you know, a lot of um, officers were retiring. The Black Lives Matter movement had kind of affected morale. There were some union um, protests about, you know, caseloads and things. And the robbery detective assigned to this case, not the homicide detective, but a robbery detective, had been transferred to patrol not long after this to fill in the holes. And so they did not hear from him for a long time. And this this is a, this was an early um, one of many examples in the article of you know an opportunity that was missed probably to stop this guy because Dr. Sinclair actually knew had met Billy Shamirmir through someone else she knew at the facility. That facility, in fact, had archives of security cameras that were reviewed much later and did catch him in the hallways on the days of two subsequent suspicious deaths that did result eventually much longer later in indictments. You know, and again, even though in that case, people did make a lot of noise, the police still viewed it as, oh, it's an old person who died. And a property crime is not a high priority. No, now well, we've mentioned his name. So obviously, the murder is Billy uh, Shea Mirmir. Now, one of the things about Billy is that um, he's not like a transient He's not a, uh, uh, you know, hiding in the in the shadows. This guy in the community. He has a family. He, again, according to your writing, he had some experience. It could have been just, you know, uh, uh, CNA, but he was a health aid kind of person. So, uh, it, you know, he knew how to move around. He probably knew how old people, even in a facility, when they nap, this kind of thing. He had a, obviously a better feel for what he was doing. So, you know, uh, this he was doing something in his comfort zone. Yes. And this is some of the experts I interviewed think that, you know, he was a lot like some of the serial killers we've seen 
who were nurses or worked in hospitals. Um, he was not a nurse. He was not a trained nurse, but he was working as a home health care aide. He had worked for several months in that capacity. He had a, he had some criminal history, but it was for things like domestic violence and uh, tr- drunk driving. So he couldn't have passed a regular background check. So he was using a fake ID. And I think that's another thing that's a little disturbing about this case is that this guy, you're absolutely right, could blend in around older people. He would wear suits. Um, he certainly knew how to look like a home health care gate. Often he would also carry some sort of a briefcase that made him look like he might be a, or a tool bag that made him look like he might be a fix-it guy or a security guy. Um, I think he'd done some security work as well. So, and he, yes, he was a, he was a well-groomed, um, respectable looking man who had legitimately been, uh, had worked as a home health care aide. In fact, one of the murder victims was the widow of a man for whom he had worked as a home health care aide. And that's how he found out about her habits. Um, but yes, the first known murders that he committed, the, the ones that leaked to him in indictments and civil suits all occurred in a um, independent living center, three in a row, not within the same week, but within weeks of each other, within a three-month period. So it wasn't a huge amount of time. And I would say that, you know, in a county the size of Dallas, one of the largest in the United States, that if they had paid attention to their own databases at the medical examiner's office or at the police department and they'd had crime analysis, they probably would have noticed there had been three felony reports of theft or burglary in the same address accompanied by... And and, and, uh, set aside the deaths, that this was in one area, and if put set aside the murders, each one of these had a theft with them. Now, maybe the theft wasn't discovered in all of them. I'll you know I'll let you say if I'm wrong on that, but certainly enough of them. And again, your map that I have to point out is is like a college campus map, and you have little numbers next to these places, and one has one, two, three, four, five. One has eight. One has seven in the same facility, not in the same area, not in the same state in the same building correct in the same complex complex i'm sorry the same complex there were three different complexes where he figured out how to get in without having to check in with anybody he figured out how to blend in he sort of was able to watch for women who used walkers or who possibly had dogs you know who might have taken a little bit longer to get in and out of doors so he could more easily push his way in. That's what um, a lawyer who really studied him figured out. Um, and um, certainly at one of these complexes, he was there according to cell phone tracking data, dozens of times, dozens of different times. And another facility, there was testimony in court about how he sat outside that facility the same week that uh, one of these attempted murders, one of these facilities had, like you said, eight cases, but also an attempted murder. Um, that specific time period, he was outside that building for hours in his car. Uh, I think most people would say casing it. I mean, there was really no reason for him to be there. He spoke to someone who, you know, tried to say hello to him. 
didn't really uh, have a reason to present for why he was there in court. Um, there was some testimony, not testimony, but video played, which he had responded to police questions about that by saying, well, he was going there to look for more home health care work. But if you were really looking for more home health care work, wouldn't you be talking to your client's friends, um, knocking on doors, um, yes. chatting with people in the parking lot? Instead, he was just sitting in his car. Um, same thing, at, uh, a couple of his victims were followed home from a Walmart um, near in the same in the same area, again, the same suburban area north of Dallas. He also was just parked there for hours watching people, sometimes going into the Walmart and coming out. But, you know, no, most people don't find it too entertaining to park for hours in Walmart and heat. Well, what's interesting, and you're leading me into my next question, which is, um, you know, we say, well, you know, they were killed. And so they're gone. They can't give a description. They can't, you know, someone might have seen him in a car, but the actual victims couldn't identify him. But oops, there's Joyce Abramowitz and there's Kay Lawson. Tell us about those two uh, poor women who... Yeah, there's, there's, there's actually... Um Joyce Abramowitz, first of all, reported a robbery in her apartment a couple of weeks prior to someone coming back in and stealing a safe she had bought after jewelry had been stolen from her apartment. And in the second go round, she was killed. Um, she did not actually see anyone the first time around because she was on vacation, but she was a repeat victim. There are three other people, one other person who was a repeat victim before she was killed, and two people who survived being attacked. Uh, the first person who survived being attacked is the woman you mentioned, Ella Lawson, and her family calls her Kay. And she was sort of in the middle of this murder spree. In October of 2017, Kay Lawson tells police in Frisco, which is a separate jurisdiction from Dallas, that a man has knocked on her door, forced his way in, and describes what Shamir Mir is doing. And she can uh, actually describe him. She physically describes him, but no alert goes out, no um, artist portrait is made that's distributed. No, no one starts telling people senior living centers in North Dallas, there is a home invader trying to steal jewelry. No one, no one does that. In fact, um, later when another victim, Miriam Nelson in March of 2018 has the very same experience, someone knocks at her door, pretends to be a maintenance person, forces his way in. She actually had left her door open because she had just gotten a grocery delivery and had forgotten to lock it. She has the presence of mind, she's on her cell phone, to stay on her cell phone and call the security people at the front desk and say, you know, is there anyone here that's supposed to be here from maintenance? And she stays on the phone and she leaves a very long voicemail describing the guy and because she does that, I think, is he leaves. But the problem is, so Miriam Nelson tells 
her family about this. They tell the, the administration. He comes back anyway. He comes back and kills her. So, you know, he's able to not only get people to ignore dead people he's killed and robbed, but they're somehow the, some of the living people who've seen him, their message is not taken as seriously as, in retrospect, both their family and police think it should have been. Now, I think that Plano police, actually, once they hear Miriam has died, realize that her earlier report is important. And her case becomes an active murder case from the beginning. But that's already very late in the game. If you look at my AARP article, I go through 26 deaths linked to Billy Shamir Mir and Miriam Nelson, bless her for speaking out the way she did, is number 23. He has gone to complex one where he's killed three people. He's gone to another complex where he's killed, you know, the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh person comes back later and kills another one. Um so, you know, you have two complexes with 12 victims. Then he goes to this third complex where he kills six people. Um, Miriam Nelson was one of the six. And then in the middle of that, he goes and knocks at the door of one of the oldest known victims, whose name is Mary Bartell. Mary Bartell was a woman in her 90s, very vigorous woman one of the oldest known victims, happened to have a pacemaker. Um, Mary Bartell gets up early in the morning, which is her habit. She has a lot of friends. She's moved to Dallas to be near her sons, but she has lots of friends she's made at this new place. And um, she gets up early, calls her sister-in-law, is reading her Bible, is ready to go out to exercise class with her friends. And in between this, someone knocks at her door. 91-year-old Mary Bartell probably thinks it's one of her friends arriving a little early, opens the door, and a guy who has rubber gloves is at the door and saying he's checking for leaks. Now, someone else in the complex had warned of, not even Miriam, but another person, had warned of someone knocking on doors pretending to be checking for leaks. Mary Bartell had not seen the, this flyer that that woman's daughter had put up because the management of this facility had taken it down because it didn't conform with their standards. So Mary Bartell did not know there was someone posing, checking for leaks. She did not know that, you know, just a few weeks before this, Miriam Nelson had reported someone who'd come in and then Mary Nelson had died. But she knew when she opened the door that she had made a bad decision because this guy was obviously a bad guy, I asked her to lay down her bed. You know, we a lot of us think, oh, if we cooperate with the robber, we'll be okay, right? So that's what she thinks. She lays down on her bed. He starts to put a pillow over her face, smothers her, probably doesn't maybe spend as much time with her as with other people because she's so old. 
and she's got a walker. And her friends, who have one of them happens to be a nurse, retired nurse, who are there to take her to exercise class, knock on their door, alarmed when she doesn't answer, realize it's open, go in and find her, call 911. And Mary's pacemaker has kicked in and she is breathing. She's not breathing deeply, but she's breathing. And her nurse friend counts her respirations. They send the paramedics. By the time she gets to the hospital, she's completely lucid. And her two sons are there and she starts telling them, I need to speak to a police officer now. They get one and the patrolman thinks her story about being attacked by a guy with weird rubber gloves is some old lady's made up hallucination. Even though Mary Bartell does not have her wedding ring or the other ring that she has worn for decades on her other hand. Both her hands are bare and her sons can see that. And they call immediately call Bush bullshit as good sons should on this cop, this young patrolman and say, you know, our mom does not imagine things. Our mom is 100%. She might be old, but she's 100%. And she did not imagine that both of her rings are gone. And so they insist on seeing a detective. And so by then, you know, a detective comes in and now we're dealing with Plano PD. Plano PD is the one that took Miriam Nelson's death seriously, right? So the Plano police officer not only knows that there's something else going on at that complex, but he also remembers to his credit, he remembers the story that he had heard from Frisco police, the other department about an intruder with rubber gloves who had forced his way into Kay Lawson's apartment the year before. So that detective, plain OPD, really, when they get that report of what Mary Bartell is telling them, they jump on it. They jump on it. They go, okay, Mary Bartell, Miriam Nelson, Kay Lawson, we got a serial killer. And they really jump on it and they find the guy who had been, who had seen this intruder in the parking lot, just hanging out that same week that this happens to Mary Bartell. And he happened to have jotted down the guy's license plate in his cell and texted himself in his cell phone or taken a picture of it. So from that, they figure out where Billy Shamir Mir lives and they decide they're going to try to go after him. They discover that he is a small time criminal and he happens to have an outstanding warrant. So they don't have to have enough probable cause to arrest him for attempted homicide. They can just go and arrest him for uh, this outstanding warrant. But they send a whole team of people because they are pretty sure he's a killer. Again, you recount, they didn't even have to like do investigation because when they got him, he had stuff in the car, he had jewel boxes, you know, jewelry boxes, whatever. It's they didn't even have to sweat him like law and order, put him in the box and yell at him. I mean, they had all the evidence they needed, at least, you know, to get one 
uh, murder going, a one murder indictment, correct? That's correct. I mean, what happens is they go to investigate him for the attempted murder of Mary Bartell, and they discover inside his car is the jewelry of another, yet another murder victim, one who had whose body hasn't even yet been discovered, a woman he's just killed in Dallas, in her home. And so the Plano police find not only the jewelry box of this other woman when they go to try to investigate Mary Bartell's attempted murder, but they find on his cell phone later pictures of Mary Bartell's stolen jewelry, and they find the address of this other woman he's murdered inside her jewelry box, which Shamirmer has just dumped in a dumpster because he's just coming home from his day of, which is apparently of casing elderly people trying to either rob them or sell their stolen jewelry and killing sort of a day's work for him, which is how the DA's office later described it. This was his job. He was a high volume seller of jewelry, which much of which turned out to be from murdered women. But anyway, so yeah, they find basically the smoking gun on yet another unknown murder of an older woman. Her, her name is Lou Ty Harris. They find her, her keys are in Shamir's car. The keys to her front door are in his car, along with her jewelry, which is again, very iconic jewelry. You know, we have a lot of immigrants in the Dallas area. We have a lot of really well-traveled people. And almost all these women had incredibly iconic, very memorable jewelry, some of which had been brought abroad. Um, that was the case with Lutai Harris. Lutai Harris had emigrated to the United States to marry her husband. She was a widow. Uh, her husband had died. But she had jewelry she'd brought from, jade jewelry she'd brought from abroad when she came to the U.S., and it was very, very distinctive. And it was in Shamir Mirror's hand, some of it. Now, this is a, a sidebar, if you will, just I'm a curious guy. And this might have come out in the trial. What did he do with all this jewelry? In other words, did he melt it down? Did he have, I mean, we're talking, you know, so much stuff. Now, rings you can melt or whatever. But this some of the jewelry described, you need a fence. You know, he um, had a relationship with more than one of these kind of gold and silver buyers. There was one that had pretty good records that testified against him in court. I think he probably had relationships with others who didn't have as good records, but they had bought thousands of dollars of jewelry from him. And I think it's worth you know noting that, of course, there are people who go to estate sales who have a good eye for jewelry and buy jewelry and make money off of it, legitimate jewelry resellers. But this guy was a high volume, not, he wasn't trying to go and resell it at jewelry stores or at pawn shops, which are very well monitored by police for theft. He was going to places that were going to fairly promptly melt it down. And some of these places had pretty good records. Some of them did not keep the records that they were required to keep under Texas law. So they could not find the jewelry of all the murdered women. They did find records of jewelry of some of them and in mary bartell's case he had put on the equivalent of like a social media website a photo of some of her jewelry and had sold it to a private party directly with her with his actual 
cell phone number and his handle. So, you know, he was so bold at the end that he really thought no one was ever going to catch him. He had gotten away with so much. He had gone, like I said, to the same place over and over and over. He robbed some of the same people more than once. Um, And he had witnesses who hadn't been believed or hadn't, you know, or there hadn't been alarm sounded when they had reported large thefts, um, even in their own complexes, much less by the police in the city where they lived. Now, turning to the management um, of these uh, facilities, these units, um, what kind of, uh, was the, you know, the security, what kind of security did they have? Well, so, you know, one of the facilities, like I said, the first facility actually had good security cameras. It's just that when these thefts were reported, they didn't go back through and find, you know, the the video that would have maybe caught Shamir. And he had been in some of these facilities often enough. He might have known where those security cameras were and how to avoid them. Um, another facility, the second one, where there were more murders, where there were nine, um, there were not very many cameras. And he seemed to use the doors where there weren't cameras. There was a camera in the front door. He figured out you could get in through the garage door, through the pool door. Um, there, some of those doors were found propped open. Um, you know, so he he figured out ways. Like I said, there were that one. Apparently, he went in there dozens of times and figured out how to do this. The third one was more like a series of apartment buildings where they're really where where Mary Bartel was attacked. Where each of those bu- those buildings was sort of independent. And, um, you know, they're real, it was very easy for him to get in and out of there. Uh, and again, even though some of the residents had tried, had very much alerted the management to the fact that there was a guy posing as a maintenance man, there had been a changeover in the ownership. And somehow the owners or the operators either opted not to warn people or or did not, did not uh, you know, took, the, took down the flyer in one case. But, you know, the thing that I um, I want to mention to to your listeners is, you know, there's a group called Secure Our Senior Safety, which is the daughters and sons and family members of these 26 murdered women, mostly, and one man, at least we know, who have tried to lobby for change, um, you know, and one of the things they've asked for is for some sort of certification system so that if you go to a place, I mean, one of, a lot of these people had left their homes thinking they were safer in an independent living facility. And again, these were independent living facilities. They weren't licensed assisted living or nursing homes. They weren't that. They were like apartment places and fairly upscale. Um, like that maybe there should be some sort of a guarantee that these people you know, have certain uh, security standards that they do meet. You know, these some of these places did not hire trained security guards. Some of them did not have uh, adequate cameras, even what, you know, normally a homeowner might have. Uh, some of them had really no uh, good uh, control of their parking lots. And and the other thing these these folks are saying is, Shouldn't there be, just like there is on college campuses, requirements for universities to share crime information in dormitories and on campuses, shouldn't there be some sort of requirement for people who live in group quarters like this to be informed, you know, to have a, because this is a more vulnerable population, just as young women living on their own in dormitories are, we know that 
know, there's rapes and there's robberies on campuses. And we recognize there's a public purpose in informing students when they're crime waves. Well, why wouldn't these older folks deserve the same warning? And why isn't there an obligation for that? So that, I think that's a you know very good question. Um, I'm sorry, we're living in that society now. And this is, as you say, upscale. It's not inner city. It's not low income housing where people are breaking in for drugs, you know, drug. This yeah. was one man, a right. one man was, crime wave. This was one man. And if you look at the first reported crime in, you know, the first facility where there were three known, you know, attacks, fatal attacks, you know, like I said, the, the, the niece and nephew went right away to the police and said, absolutely, our aunt, we believe she's been murdered, her safe was stolen, not just, you know, one ring or something a safe with a collection of gold and, and, and jewelry. Um, same thing in the second facility, astonishingly, you know, you have a woman very early on, you've mentioned her name, Joyce Abramowitz, who reports a theft of jewelry that's a significant theft. And then not long later, her safe is stolen. You know, that it's just, and she dies unexpectedly. These things seem to be things that, you know, other people whose loved ones subsequently died said, you know, that right away, there should have been an alert. And certainly there there was not only just one theft, there were, you know, within uh, a couple of weeks of each of those first incidents in each of those places, there were additional reported thefts. And as you say, some of them were not immediately discovered by family, but they were discovered by the families. Almost all of them were reported to the police and even those that weren't reported immediately to police, the management was alerted. Of course, when somebody suffocates someone, there is less a sign of a struggle usually, right? Especially if you have an older person who has willingly laid down on their bed and thinks, you know, this burglar is not going to let them go, right? There's not a struggle with a 90-some-year-old person usually. Although, like I said, Dr. Sinclair apparently put up a fight. But there were some other people who were pretty good in pretty good health, he put up a pretty serious fight, who we're talking about. Um, one of them is the woman we talked about, Carolyn McPhee, very briefly, whose husband had been a client of Billy Shamir Mears. Carolyn was in very good physical shape. And the person who followed her in, which we now know is Billy Shamir Mears, after church, found a woman who was very much ready to fight for her life. And so when her children came into that house, they were shocked at what looked to them like a sign of a struggle. Their mother's belongings, their mother's blood were in different rooms in the house. Her, you know, she's a very neat woman. Things were scattered around and um, her, her wedding ring was gone. And, and they absolutely in fact, they asked for an autopsy. They asked for, you know, DNA tests. And the, the one reason that we do know absolutely that Shamir Mir committed that murder is because her son, Scott, kept his mother's glasses. One sign that he thought was a struggle was that there were blood spatter on her glasses. He kept them. He never cleaned them. And Quite a bit after this all came to light, and he, of course, connected Billy Shamir Mirror, he recognized that name as a, he recognized the person's face as the person who had taken care of his father 
looked through records, confirmed it was the same person, even though Billy Shamir was using a fake name. Um, and had they had the police belatedly had that DNA test done and Billy Shamir's DNA was on her glasses. So which murder or murders did uh, Shmirmir go um, to trial for? Well, you remember we talked about Lutai Harris, the woman whose murder was discovered when Mary Bartell you know, survived miraculously and uh, a manhunt for Shmirmir finally occurs. That case went to trial and it was a circumstantial case, you know, because he had her jewelry, he had her house keys, there was none of his DNA found inside of her house. There was certainly a sign of a struggle. Her death was, there was immediate autopsy. She was identified as having been asphyxiated. Uh, there were petechia, there were signs on her face that had been observed and photographed by the enemy. They did the textbook uh, type of exam that you should do to see if someone has been asphyxiated after that kind of thing happens. They were not able to get him convicted right away on the first trial. There was one juror who refused to vote for conviction, but he was convicted on retrial. And part of what was used as evidence in that case was the fact that he had stalked and attempted to kill Mary Bartell, and Mary Bartell was present to testify in video, even though she had passed on before that trial. So he was convicted of that murder. Dallas County then tried him another murder involving a pretty similar uh, attack on yet another woman killed in Dallas, also convicted of that murder. And so they called it good. They had, they had another, they had a bunch of other indictments in Dallas. They decided to stop at those two life sentences. About half of the um, pending indictments against Shamir Mir that were filed in neighboring Collin County, there were two counties involved. Those cases are still pending, including the case I just described involving the murder of Carolyn McPhee, where we know there's DNA evidence. Uh, you know, the police have not been 100% forthcoming on whether they have DNA evidence in many other cases, but there was a revelation in the second trial that there is DNA evidence against Shamir Mir in yet another murder. Uh, and so, you know, there's, I think, very little doubt, there's certainly no doubt that he's a serial killer because all it takes is conviction in two separate murder cases, two different places. But, you know, these cases that I outline in the AARP article, which are, you know, extensive, are 26. He's been indicted. He was indicted in all but two of those murders. He's been linked in, in uh, civil suits to all of those murders. Uh, there's a question about whether that's even the right number. Were there others? You know, there's a period where there's a gap in the murders um, that's almost a year between October 29th, when he sort of finishes from one complex and then moves on to another. Where was he then? What was happening then? You know, there may be murders in yet another city somewhere. Um, he may have temporarily left. He may have started to think, well, gee, I have committed too many murders in one place and maybe I am going to get caught. I don't think we know the full story, and he certainly hasn't told it the full story. He has denied being the killer despite all the evidence against him. He was charged with capital murder, 
capital murder because there's it's murder with another crime, which is theft or burglary. Yep. In almost every case, um, in their capital murder has carries either life without parole in Texas or the death penalty. Dallas County's prosecutor decided, DA decided not to seek the death penalty in these cases. He really hasn't explained why, but life without parole, two sentences of life without parole is what he's got. I think the DA has basically said, you know, we wanted to have one in case there was an appeal. Uh, a lot of the evidence against Billy Shamir is circumstantial because of the huge amount of delay in investigating most of these murders. Although, like I said, Lutai Harris's case was investigated immediately. Um, and, you know, we have also, you know, the age of the surviving victims, both of the women who survived, you know, Mary Bartell, who was a key witness, died before the case got to trial. And we still have, you know, these other cases that are pending in Collin County, different DA over there. He may decide or he may not decide that that's a good use of his resources to try to try those additional cases or and or seek the death penalty. He has his own decision to make on that. He's really never said. Um, you know, I think that the assumption is no more cases will be tried in Dallas, that they're done. But it's open. You know, we'll see what happens in Collin County. So there's a, I suppose there's a chance that we'll hear more from Billy Shamir because another thing that sometimes happens is, you know, these guys spend a few years in prison, they realize they're not going to get out. Sometimes they start telling the story of what really happened. And I think one of the things that the advocates, the, the, the sons and daughters and grandchildren want is for people to know how this happened so it can be stopped if someone else tries this again. You know, that it's a cautionary tale. It's something that um, MEs, I think, are starting to pay attention to in Texas that maybe, you know, they should look harder at uh, uh, sudden deaths of seniors who are previously in good health, particularly if there's a cluster of deaths or if they're associated robberies or burglaries, there's some debate on that. You know, and certainly the Texas legislature is looking at some of these proposals that these family members are bringing forward. Um, you know, they're very worried that someone else like Billy Shamir Mir. Lisa, this has been amazing. Before we close, I want you to tell a little about yourself. You're a freelance. Tell us like some of the things you've worked on um, and what you might be working on now so we can keep our, our eyes open. I'm assuming you work for things not as specific, work for organizations and publications not as specific as AARP. I'm sure you're right. out there out there and other things. So tell us some other places you've done your work can be online, can be viewed. Yeah, well, I originally reported on Billy Shamir in my role as an editor and a reporter at the Texas Observer. I did a story called Undetected that looked at how serial killers avoid detection and accumulate additional victims. And I looked at other cases. I'm working on a book related to a serial murder in Houston. The title is A Scientist and a Serial Killer. It will be out in Random House in 2023. I'm the author of another book that is about corruption in the federal judiciary, about a federal judge who serially sexually assaulted some of his own employees in a federal courthouse. That book is called Code of Silence, and I hope you read it. So I've been, um, you know, in Texas for uh, 20 years as a journalist. I've also worked in other states. I've appeared recently in uh Netflix on in a program called uh, the Texas Killing Fields. 
and I, I appeared in a program on Annie called The Eleven, both related to my work on these kind of cases, um, and previously appeared in a CNN documentary called The Wrong Man about the uh, likelihood that uh, Texas executed an innocent man. So I've been around. And there is also a, um, a podcast on the murders that's mentioned uh, that has a link um, in the margins at the bottom of the article. Uh, tell us about that. The AARP podcast is, is actually uh, some of the recordings that I made when I interviewed the sons and daughters telling the stories of these women. I mean, these were remarkable men and women who led very full lives. You know, one of them was painting uh, a very, very gifted painter. Uh, the day she was supposedly, you know, suddenly died naturally, uh, she'd been painting a very complicated uh, reproduction. Um, th there's another woman um, who, uh, you know, had traveled the world, lived in Brazil with her husband, um, had, you know, just gone on a shopping trip the day before and had a great time with her daughter. All the stories of the families and of these amazing women whose lives were lost um, and of Mary, Mary, Mary Bartel, the woman who I think, you know, came forward and sort of brought it out at the very end uh, by refusing to be cowed by a police officer said, you know, this old person must be making this up. Um, you know, those stories are in the podcast in more detail, you know, with the, in the voices of their son's daughters. And Well, Lisa, I, I find this uh, story both fascinating and very disturbing, again, seeing as I am a, a geezer uh, and a proud member of AARP. Um, if people would like to get in contact you, uh, get in contact with you, uh, you know, to chat about this or to, uh, you know, maybe get you on another podcast, uh, please, uh, why don't you share with my audience uh, how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find more information about my book and my other publications on www.lisaolson.info. It's spelled L-I-S-E dot O-L-S-E-N. So I'd like to thank you folks for kindly tuning in for another episode of Murder Most Foul. If you liked what you heard, I hope you'll tell your friends. Information about the podcast and an email link that can get a message to me can be found at the podcast's website. The address being www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So until we meet again, Stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. <laughs>